KPFK in Los Angeles. This is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, after affirmative action, what should progressives do now to help people of color and other working class students get into college and pay for it? The nation's national affairs correspondent, John Nichols, will comment on the politics and the economics of higher education. Also, what does it mean to be a politically committed writer? That's the central question of Adam Schatz's new book, Writers and Missionaries, Essays on the Radical Imagination. Adam is the nation's former literary editor and the U.S. editor of the London Review of Books. But first, today's political update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of the American Prospect. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, let's start with news of the class struggle in America, a regular feature of this broadcast. Over the July 4th holiday, there were rumors that UPS and the Teamsters were about to come to an agreement that would prevent a nationwide strike by 340,000 drivers. It would be the nation's largest strike ever and the first national Teamster strike against UPS in more than 25 years. The Teamsters announced that UPS had agreed to their two most important demands, ending the two-tiered system where new hires get less pay and worse benefits than older workers, and putting air conditioning in those brown UPS trucks, at least in the new ones. But the Teamsters tweeted at 9 a.m. Wednesday that negotiations had broken down and, quote, strike preparations are shifting into high gear at 176 UPS Teamster local unions. Even if you're the world's largest package delivery company, when corporate America tries to mess with the Teamsters, we hit back and we hit hard. Hashtag number one union, hashtag hot union summer. So where do we stand at this point? We're speaking on Wednesday afternoon. What do your sources tell you? Well, first of all, the Teamster contract expires on July 31st. So all of this still has, uh, what, four weeks almost to play out. We've been getting hot and cold signals uh, repeatedly over the last two weeks on the state of Teamster United Parcel Service negotiations. Uh, the two hots have been the two things you cited, uh, air conditioning and uh, some elimination of the second tier. That has been a major issue for any union that is dealing with that, and it's a major issue for the Teamsters. It, it, it's a little hard to say. Uh, the, the, the Teamsters said that the company didn't give them their last best and final offer, and what they did give them was uh, clearly insufficient. Well, let's look at it. Let's assume that the two-tier thing and the air conditioning thing are, in fact, done deals. So what, is, what remains? What haven't they stipulated that they've reached an accord on? One is wage increases. Yeah. Um, the last Teamster contract, which was uh, went into effect in, in uh, 2018, uh, had relatively modest wage increases of about uh, $4 and something over the life of the contract, which at a time when inflation has been quite high, has been clearly insufficient. So you would assume that wage issues are, uh, uh, you know, one of the things that loggerheads. And then there, there are things like the cost of health insurance, which is a per and who who picks it up, which is a perennial uh, 
bargaining point in, in any union management negotiation. So um, I would uh, assume, and it is basically an assumption, that those are among the things at which uh, Teamsters and UPS are at loggerheads. Also the case that the new administration at the Teamsters, headed by Sean O'Brien, is uh, sort of, for lack of a better term, much more assertive yeah. than the predecessor regime under James P. Hoffa, and uh, you know, uh, indulges in this this kind of uh, verbiage. Uh, and you know, look, it that kind of verbiage is what you need if you are going to call out three hundred and forty thousand union members to go on strike. I am not stunned by this development, and I think we may see some changes. Uh, before July 31st, or not, in which case the Teamsters will uh, uh, will go on what will be the biggest American strike in a very long time. Beyond the UPS strike, at the horizon is uh, Amazon. Uh, Amazon, which has created, you know, millions of low-paying, part-time, lousy jobs, and that has resisted unions with all the energy that any American company can muster. The Teamsters have said they want a contract with UPS that they can show to Amazon drivers and warehouse workers and say, look what you can get if you join the Teamsters. And if and when the Teamsters take on Amazon, that will be huge. Oh, that will be absolutely huge. And I think the Teamsters know they will need the entire American union movement behind them because uh, Amazon is a behemoth. By the way, assuming they get this kind of contract, it's also what they can turn around and say to the non-union FedEx uh, drivers and warehouse workers is saying, hey, look what we got. Uh, Why don't you unionize as well? So yeah, there's no question that the UPS contract is not only a big deal in and of itself, but it, if it can sort of establish a marker for, you know, the, the, this nation's growing and huge logistics industry of drivers and uh, warehouse workers and such, that would be even huger. And I, I spoke with uh, Jane McAlevey, experienced union uh, uh, person, uh, yesterday, July 4th, and she, she said that that the wages issue is a key thing for going to Amazon, that the Amazon employees are all young, they're mostly single, they're not thinking about retirement, they're not thinking about health benefits, they want the highest possible hourly wage. And Amazon knows this, and in other conflicts has matched the wages of the union places that are threatening them. So it's very expensive for UPS to eliminate the second tier and to pay for health care. But this is why wages are so important, not just to the UPS drivers, but to the future of organizing Amazon. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, Amazon has a a sort of a structural uh, Maginot wall to uh, deter unionization. And that is the fact that the jobs are so draining and so enervating that uh, the average Amazon worker is only there for a little less than a year. Uh, That in and of itself is a tremendously, I think, effective anti-union point that uh, uh, advantages management. Uh, You know, how many people who are in there for a short term where wages are 
really the only thing they care about uh, are, are going to go on the line for unions uh, unless someone like the Teamsters, and there aren't very many like the Teamsters, <laughs> yeah. can demonstrate, uh, hey, you know, we've got this and you could get it too if, uh, if you go union. There is uh, a Teamsters Amazon division. They've organized strikes at four California work sites that are underway <laughs> right now. Uh, in Southern California, Amazon drivers in Palmdale and and warehouse workers in San Bernardino are walking picket lines for the Teamsters. One of their big issues, of course, is air conditioning in the Amazon trucks because it's it's I've heard it's hot in San Bernardino and Palmdale. The Teamsters Amazon campaign um, is up against something called battle-tested strategies, which is a DSP, Delivery Service Partner of Amazon. What is battle-tested strategies? Well, it's a subcontractor. Amazon can't make all of its own deliveries because there's close to an infinite number of (laughs) them. And so they contract with other companies uh, uh, to do it for them. And in this case, uh, what you get is... Uh, a company under contract to Amazon with workers under contract to Amazon, but the company itself has the uh, authority to bargain or not to bargain. And they said, okay, you can, you can be a union and we'll bargain with you. So this is, this is nibbling around the edges, uh, which, you know, is, is pretty much how you have to start. And if you get enough edges, then maybe you can go on to the, the thing that you're uh, edging. Okay. <laughs> Moving on to the other big potential strike of the summer, the United Auto Workers current negotiations with the big three automakers. Their con- that contract expires September 14th. I, I, looking for news on this, I found an article in the Detroit News that said, I quote, auto industry analysts at Bank of America feel confident in the likelihood of a UAW strike of at least one of the Detroit automakers later this year, and they expect the union to secure wage and benefit improvements that result in a 25 to 30% higher labor costs for the companies. That's the, the Bank of America auto industry analyst. How do they know what's going to happen and do we believe them? Well, the other, you know, I mean, Bank of America also says, and better you than us, boy. Uh, (laughs) Well, what the UAW historically has done is strike one of the big three, which, of course, are not as big as they used to be, uh, and put it, therefore, at a competitive disadvantage with the other two, which are continuing to uh, produce cars while the the targeted company is sitting idle. And, you know, there's no question that the auto companies have been raking in a lot of money lately and the union will, uh, you know, will go for that. Uh, they will uh, they will ask for substantial increases. Uh, they will ask for, uh, you know, what may be a stumbling block is that all of these companies are now buying uh, an interest in or setting up themselves electric battery uh, factories and, and, and some, uh, sometimes they will say, okay, you can unionize this or we'll go neutral. And in some cases say, well, you have to start again when the factory's in the South. And I bet that will be an issue as well. And it should be an issue. 
because national contracts pertain to uh, all of those companies' uh, auto factories within the United States. And, uh, you know, the union uh, is uh, uh, quite right to demand that it uh, pertain to all of their factories, including their auto battery factories. So that will be an issue. Uh, and I think, honestly, the kind of thing that the uh, Bank of America said is going to happen, which is wage increases, will be easier for the union to win than any uh, give on the whole question of whether the union can expand uh, without employer opposition uh, in the battery factories, most of which are being cited in the anti-union South. And isn't uh, the two-tiered labor force also an issue for the UAW yes, in this yes, negotiation? Yes, they have it a little in past contracts, but it still lingers and it is something that they need to address as well. And they know it. This has been uh, an issue for the auto workers under its uh, past regime and under its new regime. So the Teamsters and the auto workers may have massive national strikes uh, later this summer. Here in Los Angeles, the summer of strikes has already begun. Hotel workers went on strike here on Sunday, members of Unite Here Local 11, with the big, noisy, festive picket lines from Santa Monica to downtown and protests organized by community supporters in a, in a group called CLUE, C-L-U-E, Clergy and Laity United. They're an interfaith social justice group on the 4th of July. Uh, they organized the march through downtown with thousands of workers and, and supporters. Striking workers include cooks, servers, bellmen, room attendants, dishwashers, and front desk agents. One hotel settled before the strike began, the Westin Bonaventure, biggest single employer of all Southern California hotels. That's the one with the futuristic round towers that's right next to the Harbor Freeway. But that leaves 15,000 union members on strike at 62 hotels. The LA Times called it the largest hotel worker strike in history. Uh, what's the outlook for the hotel workers of Southern California at this point? Well, this is they have been one of the really premier locals in the LA labor scene since uh, the late 1980s when a uh, rather staid uh, do-nothing uh, uh, leadership was ousted by a bunch of uh, insurgents headed by Maria Elena Durazo, who headed that union for some time and is now a state senator. I think they have shown willingness to uh, be militant strikers, uh, not to cross picket lines. Uh, they timed this to the July 4th weekend, which is, you know, the tourist season in Los Angeles, de facto uh, beginning. And uh, I would expect that, uh, you know, they're going to start getting contracts analogous to the one they got at the, bon uh, the Western Bonaventure. I need to say something about Clue, as it's pronounced. But it began as a spinoff adjunct from the uh, ALA Alliance uh, uh, for a New Economy, uh, the living wage people initially, which itself began as a spinoff from uh, Local 11, uh, the hotel workers. So there's a history here going back 30 years. Why I want to interject is they give an annual award. And uh, two years ago, their annual award uh, went to the Reverend James Lawson, who is a legendary figure going back to his work uh, with Martin Luther King, and to my Aunt Harriet, 
uh, at that point, 98 years old, now 99 years old, who had testified before the Long Beach City Council on behalf of uh, underpaid maids and housekeepers at Long Beach hotels and such. So I, I, I you know, wanted just to do a shout out uh, to both uh, Reverend Lawson and my aunt. Long live Aunt Harriet. Well, she already has, but she's still going strong. <laughs> The, the LA Times had a very sympathetic story about the plight of uh, hotel workers. They reported on the life of one cook, Giovanni Ramirez, lives in Santa Clarita, way the heck up there. He has a, like an hour and a half commute to his 6 a.m. shift as a cook at the Beverly Hilton. When he gets off at 2 p.m., he goes down the block to the Century Plaza where he works a second eight-hour shift and then drives back to Santa Clarita for another hour and a half or two hours. So, and he also drives Uber on the days that he isn't uh, uh, working. Uh, this is what it takes to afford housing in in Los Angeles. Yeah, and this this is a, this is really the main issue in any LA strike right now is simply the cost of living in LA, and that housing is uh, costs much more than working class uh, Angelinos can afford. Uh, and the union is is making an issue of that. You know, it used to be that the union would uh, support new hotels if there was a provision uh, for unionization, but they actually uh, led a ballot measure that uh, defeated uh, a new hotel that would have gone up in Beverly Hills. The issue being they wanted affordable housing where that was, not a, not a new hotel. And so there is a real palpable shift to just the exigencies of life in, in, in the Los Angeles area, which on behalf not only of its members, but in a sense on behalf of all, all but the top 10% of, uh, of uh, Angelinos, uh, the union is waging uh, for incomes that are sufficient to cover the absurd prices of housing here. And, and we know that Unite Here Local 11 is a tremendous political powerhouse in the city of L.A., for example. Our new mayor, Karen Bass, is an old friend of Unite Here Local 11. We didn't know that they had so much political clout in Beverly Hills that they could block a downtown development. That is something new. That is new, and that was by a vote of residents. It wasn't by, you know, clout in the Beverly Hills City Council Local 11 has long been, along with the janitor's local, the, the local that has turned out more precinct walkers than just about any in Los Angeles relative to its size. And, uh, you know, there is definitely something about, uh, you know, a hotel housekeeper, maybe accompanied, uh, you know, by another hotel housekeeper, maybe by uh, her kid. Uh, saying, look, we really need housing uh, that, you know, is, is sufficiently compelling, apparently, even to voters in Beverly Hills. And Southern California's summer of strikes, of course, the members of the Writers Guild of America have been on strike for almost two months, 11,500 of them. There are 160,000 members of the Screen Actors Guild who have extended their negotiations to July 12th. If the actors go on strike, the writers are going to be really happy. If the actors settle before July 12th, the, the writers are going to say, we've been screwed. 
Yeah, well, you know, the the, the actors, this is a, a little bit like the Teamster UPS thing. There, there there were, you know, messages of hot and messages of cold coming out of out of their uh, negotiations and just when it appeared according to the union leadership that things were all uh, hunky-dory, some of its uh, best known members uh, beginning with Meryl Streep and Jennifer Lawrence put out a letter which has since been uh, signed by more than 1000 of, of their members saying, uh, look, we need uh, better uh, guarantees on what happens to our work when it's streamed. We need some assurances about studios using uh, AI to replicate us or, or, or to use our work to, you know, be models for AI. And for our, you know, working class members, uh, we need to stop the practice of their having to come up with the bucks to film their own, you know, additions, uh, which is, I think, a rather outrageous, uh, relatively new development in uh, in studio land. So the, the streaming remains difficult, and that was an issue across all of the guilds. But uh, the writers have the particular problem of, uh, frankly, the downsizing of the number of writers who are now currently employed uh, to work on on series, uh, uh, you know, which which is really kind of a quantitative threat to writers, which isn't the case with either actors or uh, or or directors. So the writers have a tougher road to hoe, and they would be very much helped if if the actors do go out on strike, because otherwise they're kind of stuck in a very unenviable position. Harold Meyerson of the American Prospect, his Aunt Harriet won an award from Clergy and Laity United. Thank you, Harold. Always good to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. The Supreme Court's decision striking down affirmative action, of course, was deeply racist, and their rejection of Biden's student debt cancellation policy hurt something like 43 million people. The affirmative action ban will reduce the number of Black and Latino students going to the most selective colleges. But affirmative action was always limited to a relatively small number of students. For the vast majority of students from working class families, Black, Latino, and White, elite schools were never an option, academically or financially. So what should progressives do now to help them go to college and pay for college? For comment, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for The Nation. John, welcome back. It's an honor to be with you, John. Couple of facts. There are more than 3,000 colleges in the United States, four-year and two-year schools. Only 200 use affirmative action in admissions. 2,900 of the 3,000 admit more than half of their ap applicants. And at least a third of all undergraduate students attend community college. That includes half of Latino undergraduates. And community colleges typically have open enrollment. So what can we do to help students attend college? Well, it's all the things Bernie's been talking about for decades. We should make it free. We should give them help paying for housing and food. We should forgive student debt. Where should we start? Yeah. 
there's a couple of things we should do right up front. First and foremost, we should establish the principle. This is before we get to what government can and should do. We should establish a principle in our own minds that education is a right. And that's important. It's the same with healthcare. And, and we've done pretty well at, at getting people to recognize healthcare as a right. We sometimes even hear relatively moderate Democratic politicians say that now. But on education, there is still a, an element of elitism in play uh, across the board. And people will say, well, you know, it's, uh, it's something that you pay for. No, we should just put aside all the, the excess language and say education is a right. And if it is a right, then that means that people should have more than just access to education, i.e. they should have more than just uh, the ability if they can find a million dollars to pursue whatever education they want. They should have a right to get that education at the level that their skills take them. Now, the way to do that starts to get much more complicated because you don't just start at college. I mean, to make sure that their skills are built up and realized, you start back at, at you know preschool. And then when they get to the college level, there should be a guarantee that you have the education, I would say, for free. And I, I, I'm in that Bernie camp, but at the very least, at a very modest level. And that going with that, you have the continued benefits that, that a very wealthy person would have, right? If it's a right, then we should say, that, yeah, you have to have some access to housing. You have to have some access to food, to transportation, to things of that nature. So it's a package that we develop. And it just says, you know, we, we want you to succeed. We know you can succeed if we don't put too many barriers in your way. Now, that may sound like a lot. That may sound, you know, hugely expensive. But the fact is, I was just writing this week about the defense budget, 800 and uh, I, hope, I think I'm right about this, $880 billion dollars, coming close to a trillion dollars. I mean, the truth of the matter is that what we're talking about for making higher education free and making it accessible for people at community colleges, at universities, at, at whatever facility that, that their talents can take them to, that, that doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of what the defense budget is. So we've got the resources to do it. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. And what we can do is look at you know what other countries are doing and recognize if they can pull it off, we can pull it off. And then if we really, you know, if you want to be very nationalistic about it, we can also look at what New York City did. Because remember, in New York City, college was free uh, for a very, very long time. And we got some of the most brilliant scholars in the history of the world uh, through <laughs> yes. that system. Yes. And we also did not go broke as a country. So uh, we have international models, we have domestic models, begin with that concept that education is a right, and then make it real. Let's talk about some of the specifics of Biden's policies, what the Supreme Court says, what other states are doing. Student debt, uh, one of Biden's big, biggest and most important promises, and the result of a decade of work by the Debt Collective, a wonderful direct action uh, group. Biden's plan was clearly permitted by the law the Supreme Court was just denying what has already been written into law, but that's what they've done. And under the Constitution, they have the power to do that. The plan they banned would have wiped out something like $400 billion in debt. The Biden administration, through other uh, policies, has already canceled $66 billion in student loan debt for more than 
2 million borrowers. Now Biden is trying to come up with some workarounds, the public service loan forgiveness program. If you've worked for the public sector for 10 years and paid your student loan debt payments, you can get your loan forgiven. This is like teachers or or doctors. If you've attended a school that misled you, some of these profit-making fraud uh, operations, you can get your entire debt uh, forgiven. For the debt that remains, Biden has announced a one-year pause on collection, not quite the same as cancellation. What do you think we stand on all this? Well, it's a disastrous situation. Joe Biden, while he clearly kind of gets the issue, doesn't quite have the passion that I think you you would want to see in this regard. Look, debt, student debt, is is more than just a burden that people carry around with them. It defines our society. It says to people who get great skills in medicine, the law, education, you've got these great skills. You could put them to work for society. You want to do so. But you're carrying this incredible burden, so you end up taking a job that you don't want to do because it pays you enough to cover your student debt. And um, and look, the fact is we should begin with the concept that nobody took on student debt casually. The overwhelming majority of people who have student debt did their best to try and avoid it, but at the end of the day, they couldn't. If we begin with that concept that society benefits from this, then it becomes easier to make the arguments for the interventions that are needed. And frankly, because of the problems with the court, because of the challenges with Congress, I think it has to become a central issue in 2024. It's got to be something Biden runs on and basically says, you elect me, give me a majority in the Senate and the House, and here's the plan we will implement to make college available for all and to eliminate student debt. Instead of getting lost in the minutia of coming up with a plan, what you recognize is you have a political crisis. The court has made this political crisis worse. To address that political crisis, you need to elect a a president and a Senate that are committed to a specific plan. That's certainly doable in time for 2024. On affirmative action, nine states have already abolished affirmative action at public institutions, notably California, which banned affirmative action on a right-wing referendum in 1998. California, being a blue state very committed to, to equality, has spent half a billion dollars to try to make sure that the University of California is not just a, a lead institution for, for middle-class uh, students. And they have done a lot in what is called race-neutral outreach programs. We might call this a class-based affirmative action. They consider family income as one factor in admissions. They have a program where a percentage of the top students at every public high school in the state are guaranteed admission. Other states are doing this too. In California, the top 4% of every public high school is guaranteed admission to the University of California. In Texas, the top 10%. In Florida, the top 20% are guaranteed. Ron DeSantis forgot about this somehow. Of he, course, he may be coming for it soon. Of, yeah. Yes. Of course, the University of California knows this can't just start with graduating seniors. I think their programs start in the ninth grade. But as you say, really, this has to go all the way back to elementary school and preschool even better. I do caution that 
you can't just have a class-based assessment of it. And I say that as somebody who really believes class should be a part of our discourse yeah. on a regular basis, but you also have to recognize race and ethnicity in some cases are huge issues here. That has to be a part of what we're trying to do. Again, to have a the, the diversity that you're seeking, which is good for society, which is good for everybody. The fact that some states have come up with innovative solutions, or at least solutions that get us a little bit of the way along here, that's that's a start. But we have to recognize that the majority of states aren't doing that or haven't yeah. done that. And so we need national solutions. Yeah. That's just as simple as that. Another thing that we ought to talk about, and Jamal Bowman, the congressman from New York, has done a very good job of focusing on this, along with Jeff Merkley from Oregon, is the reality of legacy admissions at college, colleges across this country. Yes. It's essentially affirmative action for wealthy white people. Wealthy white people who do not qualify under the merit criteria. That's right. And, and the amazing thing about this is the court let that stand. The court also let affirmative action stand at military schools, you know, because it's really affirmative action is a good thing. You know, it yeah. does a lot of good comes from it. This brings us to the crisis of the Supreme Court. I think it's time for Democrats to run in a different way as regards the court, not just to say, oh, elect us so that we'll be there and we can appoint good people, right? If by luck of the draw, an opening comes, right? Yeah. Um, no, we've got to get to that that reality that the court is dysfunctional. It's not working. It needs to be reformed. Ro Khanna and others have you know, put forward legislative proposals who are saying, look, the court should be expanded. We should also consider term limits for justices. We should open up the discussion about the Supreme Court because at this point, if we don't do that, we run the risk of coming up with creative and smart and, and decent workarounds that still end up getting you know churned in, yep. into the court. And then once we recognize that up, we need a different court. We need a different way of doing these things. And that requires a different Senate at the very least, a, a much more, you know, a bolder Senate and a president that's willing to fight on this. And we should remember one other thing too. In many states across this country, the top education official is elected, a superintendent of public instruction. Those races are often relatively low profile races. They need to become much higher profile races. Excellent. Excellent point. So really all this comes down in the end to voting and voting rights. And really the main reason, the only reason that we have gotten into this situation is because of voter suppression. If we had equal access to the ballot, we know from opinion polling that most Americans would vote for more progressive candidates and more progressive legislation. And, you know, the Republicans have been working to stop this from happening for decades. As Republicans become more marginalized through their own unpopular views, they have to use more extreme means to hold on to power. For instance, January 6th, really voting rights is the mother of all politics. And we do have some examples of states where Republican power was overturned. Wisconsin in the recent election of a progressive to the Supreme Court. I know you won't be shocked to hear that Wisconsin now provides a kind of a model for the rest of the nation mm -hmm. of how to mobilize the, the progressive Democratic majority to overturn restrictions on voting that uh, Republicans have put in place over the last many decades. We have so much voter suppression and so much voter denial. And I'm trying to get the term voter denial into the mix a little more along with suppression. Um, you know, we deny the reality of where our voters are with the U.S. Senate and with the Electoral College. 
we give disproportional power to small states, uh, which effectively trumps, hate to use the word, the votes from larger states. And so we have a situation where the majority of Americans are now increasingly denied, right? Their, their will is denied by our system. And those systemic problems are things we should talk about all the time. Now, we have recognized, of course, that to get rid of the Electoral College, uh, to change the Senate, uh, both things we should do. Those require constitutional amendments uh, by most measures. And, you know, we can, there are some workarounds with the national popular vote and that. But these are really tough challenges. Then you have the gerrymandering of Congress, which is, or the House, which is, is an additional challenge, gerrymandering of state legislatures. The fact of the matter is, if you came from outside the United States, and you looked at the whole system in this country, you would say, wow, there's a country that really doesn't want a lot of people to vote. If they do vote, wants to make sure that those that the will of those people who vote isn't reflected in the governance of the country. That is a really awful circumstance to be in. And it's one we should be focused on on all sorts of levels. The fact of the matter is getting the focus on it at the federal level is difficult because the federal level is such a reflection of those barriers, right? So the action of the states, as in the progressive era of 100 years ago, more than 100 years ago, becomes really important. And that's where we come back to Wisconsin. Wisconsin is a state that Republicans, through huge amounts of uh, outside spending money from billionaires who didn't live in Wisconsin, was transformed into a pretty conservative state. There was a period in the 2010s where there were a lot of people who thought that Wisconsin was going to become a red state. Yeah. Uh, as uh, our neighboring state of Iowa, at least to some extent, has in, in recent years. That didn't happen. That didn't happen because of uh, some historical, geographical, and demographic balances that, that worked out, but also because of an immense amount of hard work. And that hard work and focus recognized where the races that matter are. Um, in Wisconsin now, progressives have control of the governorship, uh, most statewide elected offices, and as of August 1st, they'll have control of the state Supreme Court. That should be sufficient to begin to undo some of the damage, damage as regards gerrymandering and a host of other issues. Uh, I would say, and I wrote a big piece for the, the nation on this, writing about Ben Wickler, who's the chair of the Wisconsin, Wisconsin party, that there is a model there and that that is a model that can apply in any state in the country. There is no state that where you shouldn't uh, at least be looking at that strategy of building over time. In Wisconsin, it took 10 years focusing on the races that matter and figuring out strategically how to undo the worst of this damage and to, to remove these barriers. Um, it's sad, frankly, that we have to do it state by state. It's challenging. It's not, it's not the way it should be. But uh, because we have so-called battleground states in the US, you don't have to do all 50 states. I believe in a 50-state strategy. I think you should. But the, the simple reality is that if you can make this progress in a handful of states that are so-called battlegrounds, and that that can then influence presidential politics as well as Senate races and House races, uh, we have an opening to get a, a different Congress. Uh, in Wisconsin, you could see two, even three U.S. House seats flip from Republican to Democrat if there's a fair map, uh, and more of that around the country. You've got this opening that we can start to, to deal with some of these problems. When and if Democrats get substantial majorities again in the House and the Senate and hold the White House, as they had as recently as 2008 or 2009, when they get that, they have to put reform of this broken system front and center. 
you can't make reform the the issue you get to, you know, after you do 10 other things. It's got to be central to what you do. And so hopefully, hopefully, um, Wisconsin does help to provide a sort of a, a light, uh, you know, in the in the distance uh, that, that guides states across the country toward a way that might work on, on doing some of this. Hopefully then that leads to a Senate with a uh, solid progressive majority, at least Democratic majority and leaning progressive, a presidency that goes with us with it. That helps to change the court and hopefully a House that uh, through fairer maps works with that Senate and with that president. By the end of this decade, if we focus in correctly on how to do politics, there is a real possibility that we can move the country in a much more progressive direction. John Nichols, his book, It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism, is co-authored by Bernie Sanders. You can read him every week at thenation.com. John, thanks for talking with us today. It's a great pleasure, John. Thanks for having me. Same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. What does it mean to be a politically committed writer? Adam Schatz has been thinking about that for a while now. He's the U.S. editor of the London Review of Books and former literary editor of The Nation. He's also written for the New York Times Magazine, the New York Review, and the New Yorker, and he's host of a wonderful podcast called Myself with Others. Now we have a book of his essays, Writers and Missionaries, Essays on the Radical Imagination. We reached him today at home in Brooklyn. Adam, welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. Always a pleasure. Well, today an author's identity is crucial. Women and people of color have authority to write about their experiences and ideas, as do LGBTQ writers. But there was a time when you were a student a while ago, when the death of the author was the ruling idea in literary criticism. That was the title of an essay by Roland Barthes, who said, it is language which speaks, not the author. And Michel Foucault agreed, asking, quote, what difference does it make who is speaking? And then finally, Jacques Derrida, whose motto was, there's nothing outside the text. That was the world of literary theory when you arrived at college in 1990. What did you think about the idea that it is language that speaks, not the author? Well, I admit that at the time I, I, I bathed in, in this idea. It seemed the height of sophistication, totally counterintuitive, which was part of its attraction and all the, the cool people were talking about it. So <laughs> what was not to like? Um, the idea behind it, of course, was that any kind of focus on a writer's life and experience, the writer's relationship to history, led you away from the play of language, from the words in the text, and in a sense, was a way of controlling, limiting interpretation. I mean, in effect, what Bart and Foucault were saying was that the, the very name of the author is a policing function. It limits what you can say about a text. And so it seemed very libertarian in a way. And for that reason, um, I found it appealing, but it also went against some of my other instincts. You quote a wonderful line from Jean-Paul Sartre's 1948 essay, What is Literature? What did he say about writers? 
writers are alive before they're dead. His argument was that writers make choices. They take up moral and political positions in their prose. They're, you know, they are connected to institutions of, of power and, to, and they are writing for a public. And uh, Sartre was, was drawn to that field of activity in a way that I think, you know, Barthes and Foucault really weren't. So for the generation of intellectuals writing after World War II, Sartre personified the engaged intellectual. This, of course, was the age of existentialism. But you write about Sartre, the man was more important than his ideas. Please explain. I think I say that the man was more important than his ideas in an essay about Sartre's impact on Arab writers um, and writers in the Middle East where he had an enormous impact because of his bold anti-colonialism and his opposition to the war in Algeria and ultimately his support for the Algerian National Liberation Front. And I think that while Sartre's uh, existentialist projects certainly had some, some influence among Middle Eastern and Arab philosophers, his influence was much deeper as a public figure, as an, as a rep, as an, as a, um, an exemplar of what a universal intellectual uh, could be. And ultimately, that was also true of his impact in France. Uh, Sartrean existentialism is a finished project, but the idea of the universal intellectual still holds some appeal, even though there are very few practitioners today. There is an aura to Sartre, you know, which he never quite lost, in spite of all the efforts of younger philosophers to slay the mighty father. Okay, the background and biography of writers shape their work, but that's not the most important thing. Most important, you write, is how they choose to interpret their past, how they incorporate this understanding into the project. And you're talking here not just about political choices, but also about their aesthetic commitments. Yes, you know, my argument is not that... Uh that writing is regurgitated biography. It's not. I'm not saying that you can reduce a philosophical project like Derrida's deconstruction to the life that he led. Clearly you can't. But if you, if you read Derrida's work and some of his concerns against the backdrop of, of his life, particularly of his childhood, you begin to see that some of the ideas in deconstruction, for example, the critique of binary thinking, uh, are rooted in uh, this, the traumas that he suffered in Algeria um, in the 1940s when he was a school child uh, evicted uh, from his school when Algerian Jews were stripped of their citizenship. Now, Derrida was not an Andijan, he was not a native, he was not an Arab or Berber, but at the same time, he wasn't a French settler. He was from uh, a community of, of Algerian Jews who traced their origins to both Jewish Berbers and to uh, Spanish Jews who had fled the Inquisition. So these uh, Algerian Jews were a third party. They were not colonizer or colonized. You can see the relationship between that and Derrida's critique of binarism. So I'm not saying that's all deconstruction is, but I'm saying that our understanding of deconstruction as a humanistic project is deepened by engagement with the life. You've always been fascinated by ideological conversion, especially thinkers who move from left to right. You open your book with Fuad Ajami, the most politically influential Arab intellectual of his generation in the United States. He died in 2014, was a political scientist and a professor at Princeton, then Johns Hopkins, 
who started out as a critic of American power and a defender of Palestinian rights, and also a critic of the failings of Arab politicians and intellectuals. And he was a MacArthur genius, class of 1982. How did he end up? You know, it's it's funny that you described Ajami as the most politically influential uh, Arab intellectual of his time. And I guess, you know, that's true. I mean, I was just thinking, was Edward Said as influential? Well, intellectually, but not politically. And it's because of where Ajami ended up. Ajami uh, eventually gravitated towards a kind of neoconservative establishment. And uh, in the days before the Iraq war, Dick Cheney was citing Ajami's authority that the Iraqis would greet the American soldiers invading with rice and flowers. <laughs> uh, so, uh, no, uh, Ajami's... Uh, trajectory is a is a very striking one and i i was fascinated by this story because you know he'd started out as um a, a child of uh of, of lebanese shia parents in a area of beirut called arnoon and uh was you know early on uh enraptured by gamal abel nasser and, and pan-arabism became a, a very thoughtful and judicious critic of american power in the west uh when he arrived in the states um, was very close to Saeed, and then traveled this road towards uh, the American Empire, which 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 uh, embraced him with alacrity. Um, he was often on tele. He was a, constantly on CBS. In fact, I write about him very critically, of course, but also with some admiration for the elegance of his prose and for the insights of his early work. And I think that this, there's there's something tragic about the story too. Another theme of your book is Black American writers who went into exile in France. Today, when we look back on Black writing in America since World War II, James Baldwin is everything. But there was a time in the 40s when Richard Wright was not only America's most famous and commercially successful Black writer, but also an international literary celebrity. Of course, in 1940, he had published the novel Native Son, the unforgettable story of Bigger Thomas, who kills two women, one white and one black. And then in 1949, a young black writer named James Baldwin attacked that book. And you write, its author never really recovered. First of all, remind us about Richard Wright and Bigger Thomas. Why was Bigger so important? The critic Irving Howe said that Native Son changed the face of American literature, and I don't think it's an exaggeration. There had not been a novel that had depicted in such a blunt and brutal fashion the rage and fury of a poor black man from the American slums. Bigger Thomas was in that sense a, an utterly revolutionary invention. Wright had earlier published a collection of stories, Uncle Tom's Cabin, and when he found out that um, it had become so popular, he was determined to write a novel that would scandalize, infuriate, and terrify middle-class white readers. He, he certainly succeeded with Native Son. And what was James Baldwin's critique in 1949? Uh, Baldwin was a, was a huge admirer of Richard Wright's memoir, A Black Boy, which was published in 1945, and in fact said that he could never quite forgive Richard Wright for having written that memoir, because that's the book we all wanted to write. <laughs> um, but he, he was very troubled by Native Son, and he wrote about it in a kind of addendum to a piece about Harriet Beecher Stowe's novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin. And his argument was that uh, 
in Richard Wright's novel, as in Uncle Tom's Cabin, the reality of the Black character is essentially reducible to that person's categorization. Richard Wright had not written a character like Richard Wright. He'd <laughs> written a character who was a, a symbol of violence and monstrosity. Now, it's important to remember that when Baldwin read uh, Native Son, some very important passages had been expurgated because the book had been chosen by, by the Book of the Month Club. And as a condition of its inclusion, uh, Wright had to cut passages in which it's clear that the white woman he kills, Mary Dalton, uh, wants to have sex with him. In the, in the version of Native Son that was published at the time, he appears to be killing her without motive, except the fear that he would be caught in a bedroom with a white woman. In the novel, in the original novel, Mary Dalton, who's drunk, is turned on, and so is he. And it is, it is a consensual moment. And that is that moment was utterly scandalous from the point of view of the Book of the Month Club. And so the story lost a good deal of its erotic complexity. So, you know, it's important to remember that Baldwin was responding to that and not to Wright's original intentions. Nevertheless, what Baldwin, I think, felt was that Wright had written a kind of 30s-style social realist novel using a Black man as a symbol rather than exploring the complexities, especially the psychological complexities uh, of Black experience. I think another criticism that Baldwin had was that there is that you do not see a restorative, nurturing Black community in Native Son. In Native Son, the Black individuals are almost anomic. The family barely seems to count for anything. You know, in Baldwin, the Black family is everything. It's, it's where you go in hard times. Right depicts his characters as alienated, lonely individuals who are denied even the comforts of tribe. And uh, Baldwin, Baldwin objected to this. But this was certainly the way that Richard Wright understood his world. And who was James Baldwin when he went after Richard Wright in 1949? Well, you know, Baldwin was a, was a young writer. He was, um, he was barely 25 years old. He, he'd moved to Paris. A year earlier, he published the piece in a, in a Paris-based magazine called Zero and then republished it in the Partisan Review. And not long after that, wrote a follow-up to the piece in which he attacked Richard Wright even more harshly, Many Thousands Gone. It's very important to recall that, that Richard Wright was uh, an idol for, for James Baldwin. James Baldwin had gone to Richard Wright's home just before Richard Wright and his, and his wife, Ellen, and their, their young daughter moved to Paris. And when he went to visit the Wright family in Brooklyn, Wright plied him with bourbon and took him on as a kind of protege and arranged for Baldwin to get uh, an important grant, the Eugene Saxton grant, which allowed Baldwin to continue writing his novel, his, his autobiographical novel, uh, Go Tell It on the Mountain. So Richard Wright was sitting in a, a cafe in Paris when Baldwin entered on the day of the publication of that 1949 piece, called Baldwin over to his table, said, said I want to have a, a word with you, young man, and accused Baldwin of trying to destroy him. And Baldwin writes in a, in a retrospective essay that he wrote in 1961 after, after Richard Wright's death, that he, it never occurred to him that he could destroy the <laughs> reputation of a man like Richard Wright. But in a sense, he did. 
I'm exaggerating, of course, but um, the but the the impact on on uh, on Wright's reputation was was lasting. Your essay on Richard Wright focuses on his days as an expat in in France, starting in 1946. Of course, this takes us back to existentialism. What did Jean-Paul Sartre think about Richard Wright and Bigger Thomas? Sartre was a was a great admirer. Uh, of Richard Wright, as was Simone de Beauvoir. They they loved um, Native Son and Black Boy and published uh, translations of the work in the existential journal Les Temps Modernes, which is where uh, readers like Franz Fanon first discovered uh, Richard Wright's work. And it was felt, I think, that Wright was a kind of um, intuitive existentialist, that his exploration of Black life in America Yes, it was a kind of raw existentialism, and and Wright uh, became very curious about existentialism when he got to Paris and uh, wrote a novel um, called The Outsider, which is stuffed with existential ideas for for better or for worse. Although Wright, I think, also had a sense that perhaps the existentialists needed him more than uh, more than he needed them. He was standing in front of his library one day with uh, the Trinidadian uh, Marxist writer uh, C. L. R. James. And he said to James, you see all those books, Existentialist, Kierkegaard, Carl Jaspers, etc. I, I understood that before I even read them. <laughs> and that was another one of Baldwin's objections to write in his later essay, Alas, Poor Richard, the one that was published after his death in 61. And it was that uh, Wright had forged this relationship with existentialists who had no feeling for black life. And then there was one best-selling black American writer in the 60s who celebrated Native Son and Bigger Thomas, Eldridge Cleaver. What was his view? Well, Eldridge Cleaver regarded Bigger Thomas as a proto-revolutionary because he had carried out these extremely violent acts against white power, the, the daughter of a very wealthy white man who had employed him. And he found the language of, uh, of, of Native Son. He found the, the kind of carnal embrace of violence and the relationship between violence and uh, self-liberation to be enthralling. Remember that Bigger Thomas comes into an awareness of himself as an individual, of his freedom in killing. It's the first time he actually feels like a man. And, and for Eldridge Cleaver, who had spent all this time in prison and who you know, had been involved in various violent activities, he felt a great sense of identification uh, with Bigger Thomas. Now, oddly enough, one of Richard Wright's fiercest critics, and uh, a man who had been his protege, his friend, Ralph Ellison, had once defended Native Son in almost exactly the same terms in correspondence with Richard Wright. The history around Native Son, its, its admirers and its critics, is, is truly fascinating. One other thing. Richard Wright had been a member of the American Communist Party. How did that work out? Well, you could argue that it worked out very badly, of course, because Richard Wright became very frustrated uh, by the party in World War II uh, when it put aside its very admirable anti-racist work to support the war effort. And Wright also opposed the entry into the war initially. And he became so frustrated with the party that he eventually left and he wrote a famous essay that appeared in The God That Failed. So from that point of view, one could argue that Richard Wright's story is the classic story of the 
left-wing intellectuals who joins the party and then leaves. However, there's also a strong argument that Richard Wright owed a great debt to the political party, even though he eventually outwore it. It was in the political party that he first found his voice as an intellectual, as a writer. It's where he realized that there was a space in American life where black and white people could actually interact on an equal plane, where black people could have leadership positions, where black people could be in a position of authority towards whites. And he wrote his earliest work, some of his best work, as a communist. Even Native Son is the work of a communist writer. So I think the Richard Wright's relationship to the Communist Party is a complex one. I, I, I don't think it's a matter of simply of someone who is stifled by a party and emancipates himself from it. That's a part of it, but the early part is also true. The title of your book is Writers and Missionaries, but the last essay is called Writers or Missionaries. What's going on here? The change in the title reflects uh, an updating or uh, in my thinking or, or an added nuance. When I, in 2014, I gave a lecture about my experience of reporting in the Middle East and it was titled Writers or Missionaries and it drew upon a conversation that I had with V.S. Naipaul, uh, the Nobel Prize winning Trinidadian Indian writer, just after um, 9-11. And V.S. Naipaul said, if you're writing on a subject as controversial and sensitive as political Islam, as Islam, you have to make a choice. Are you a writer or are you a missionary? Are you willing to discuss things that are taboo, that are troubling? Or is your main interest soft peddling these realities and presenting something in a noble light? Now, if anyone was a missionary on the question of Islam, it was V.S. Naipaul. I mean, Naipaul however brilliant a novelist he was, was also quite Islamophobic. I mean, toward the end of his life, I think he was very sympathetic to the, the Modi regime in India. And I'm not even talking about his, his views on, on Black Africans, which are just as troubling. However, the comment did stick with me. I, I do think that there, there are tensions between being a writer and being a missionary, between being a committed writer and being an analyst between being a critic and being an advocate. There are tensions. And the, the purpose of that talk was to underscore the tensions. But in the book, you know, my argument is that it's not a binary, it's not clear cut. As a writer, you're, you're both. And your relationship to these things shifts depending on context, depending on mood, depending on what, what you're responding to. And so that's why I decided that the title needed to be adjusted. And finally, we often praise people who speak truth to power, but you say, first of all, that's not so easy. And second of all, that's not your primary goal in your work. Please explain that. It's not that I think that speaking truth to power is unimportant. It's not that I think it shouldn't be done. I've certainly done a fair amount of it myself and will continue to do that. It's just that I think the most interesting, most lasting writing asks questions more than attempting to resolve them. And what's more, I've become much more interested in how a position is argued than in what its ultimate argument is. And so to me, the lasting interest of writing lies more in details and in nuance, in complexity of expression. And so I, I, I guess, you know, that sentence reflects the fact that I was getting a little bored with writing that is simply about exposing injustice. There is, of course, a place for that, particularly 
in muckraking reporting. But I think when we're reflecting on experiences and realities that are so multifaceted, that simply calling out abuses is not enough. And often it can be an excuse for failing to look within, for for performing kinds of self-reflection that are just as significant, just as important. Adam Schatz, his book, Writers and Missionaries, Essays on the Radical Imagination, is out now. Adam, thank you for all your work, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Music